So yeah, just to begin, if you want to start by introducing yourself, talking about your research, and then we will start asking questions. Uh, sure, my name is Chris Gilbert. Uh, I have lived in Venezuela since 2006. Um, maybe it's important that I arrived here without, uh, without a job, for example. I came here to participate and learn from a revolution. Later, I began to teach uh, political science at the Bolivarian University. And uh, I also, together with Cira Pascual Marquina, were creators of, a, of an educational Marxist program called Escuela de Cuadros, which you can find on YouTube right now. Um, I can say something about my research interests. I, um, one of the things that, when I first arrived here, there was a rich discourse about uh, communication, or um, we talked about a Marxist or materialist theory of communication, the, the, com the community media phenomenon was very strong, and of course Chavez was an important communicator. And so that was one of the areas where the Bolivarian process developed theory. Um, then later on, I became interested in a feature of, of, of Chavismo that I thought was under-recognized, surprising, because it was the most obvious feature, the reference to Bolivar and the historical memory of Bolivar. So I tried to theorize that, appealing to perhaps a surprising theoretical register, which would be Walter Benjamin, the, the German Marxist theorist. Essentially, um, Chavez talked all the time about Bolivar, and I felt that most uh, interpreters or analysis of Chavez really ignored that whole set of references. So I thought the best way to approach that was through Benjamin's appeal to history. He talks about having a date with history and that fit perfectly with Chavez's model. Um, then later on, I also became interested in um, what, what was the programmatic features of Chavismo. I felt that people tended to present Chavez as a, uh, as a kind of spectacular, charismatic, iconic figure, but paid little attention to his programs. And so I was interested in the programmatic nature of Chavismo, and especially that when the program became more scientific, when it turned to Marxism and appealed to Marxism, especially the Marxism of Esteban Mastaros. And I continued to research in that area related to Chavez and Mastaros. And then maybe a third element, just to point to a few features of my investigations into Chavismo. I mentioned that Benjamin is kind of like a set of theories, a, theory, a theoretical register that comes out of Europe, but applies very logically to the Bolivarian process. But another theoretical register that comes out of Europe is uh, the kind of popular Marxism of E.P. Thompson. And uh, that's interesting too, because it applies, you know, it's kind of like hand and glove into the Bolivarian process, so much so that people don't pay attention to it. But essentially the protagonism of the masses, the way the uh, the working class or the worker class self-constructs itself, constructs its own imaginary, constructs its own um, program. Those features of, of E.P. Thompson's or Ellen Wood's Marxism um, seem to be completely relevant, so relevant they tend to pass uh, unperceived in regard to the Bolivarian process. Um, and then finally, and I think this is probably the focus of our interest today, um, I became very interested in the communal, in the commune as part of a, as a programmatic element of Chavismo. Um, that's not just an academic interest. Uh, the communes represent, there's a communal movement right now in Chavez, in, in, in Venezuela. And to some extent, you can say that like within Chavismo, there's different tendencies. It's a polyclassist movement. And the communal movement represents the more revolutionary element of Chavismo, somewhat in rivalry with the hegemonic bloc and the government. So I've come to investigate communes. And then that also connects with the, the interest in Esteban Masados because Masados' theory his analysis of the limitations or failures of actually existing 
socialism, that's the socialism of the Soviet Union and the East Bloc, have a lot to do with the, the importance of communes and democracy, a kind of substantive or grassroots democracy that could be realized in communes. So those are some of my research interests. Well, thanks so much. And I guess we'll kind of just kick it off by asking you to kind of describe like what you saw when you visited the communes. I, I've read the article about the Che Guevara commune in particular, and what kind of struck me, you know, you, you came in looking for the reactions and, and responses that people on the ground in the communes take to sanctions and the 2008 financial crisis as well, and all the impacts this has on Venezuela uh, under, you know, developing Chavismo. And so, you know, you discovered a bunch of different things. And as you mentioned earlier, this is kind of presented in, in chronicle fashion as like uh, a story of discovering. And one that struck me was, you know, so innovations in labor, for example, like you talk about, uh, and you compare the, the process of, uh, of, of adding extra work or adding on work to Lenin's Red Saturdays, for example. And then you also discuss the innovations in like kind of a communal currency, the, the capito, the you know, issued by the commune itself, um, when the dollar being illegal in Venezuela. So I'm I'm curious about these, and if you can describe more the theoretical innovations that these make on Chavismo, which you described, but also just on innovations in labor uh, in the the communization process as well. And yeah, just just curious about uh, that experience. Uh, sure, there's a couple of threads to what you mentioned, and um, one of them is. Uh... The Chronicle, why did I choose to write Chronicles? Uh, partly that's the sense of, uh, you know, a Chronicle is a more or less archaic literary format, but it has the virtue of kind of staying close to the ground. And uh, another format I've used, and recently, uh, Cira Pascual Martina and I developed this book, uh, The President of Struggle, uh, Venezuela, The President of Struggle, which relies on interviews. So an interview is another kind of like uh, grass, you get to, right to the bases, you, I would say it's responsible, in other words, you hover close to the ground uh, and you gather information. And the same thing with the Chronicle, though, of course, the Chronicle has a first person voice and there's a process of interpretation as you go along. Um, you know, when I started to write Chronicles, the first one I wrote was about the Che Guevara, uh, the Maisal commune in Lauder State, which is a somewhat more advanced, even more advanced commune than the Che Guevara commune. And one of the things that I found most uh, pleasurably surprising to, about writing that piece or traveling to the commune, I'd been there before, but was a more systematic visit when I wrote the Chronicle, is that um, it was like time travel. You know, I went, I felt like I was coming back to the early days of Chavismo. Many of these, um, you, you asked me what I encountered when I first arrived to Venezuela in 2006. Well, one of the things I encountered, and it's hard to maintain this in memory because like bourgeois, to say, put it, bourgeois historiography or, or mainstream historiography always writes certain things out of history. So it's important to live them firsthand or if you don't have another window on, what actually happened. So when I arrived here in 2006, one of the things that was totally obvious, central, important was that people were in the streets every day. You know, it was a mass movement, popular effervescence, popular low politicization on every level. And, you know, you'd be in a bus or something, you'd talk to somebody about revolutionary processes or theory or something like that. So that's an extraordinary situation. Che Guevara famously said that, you know, I think Che Guevara and Trotsky too said that the that a revolution is when the, the extraordinary becomes quotidian or ordinary. And certainly that's something I lived in 2006. So it's interesting, you know, like right now, Venezuela is kind of quiet politically. 
of course, there's the conflicts with imperialism, but a lot of there's a lot of silences and the politicization of the public sphere is not so evident. Nevertheless, if you go to a commune or the countryside, you find this old old style Chavismo, this kind of uh, high level of politicization, protagonism, participation are all alive. So it's kind of like a happy time travel to encounter those things. And that's precisely why um, Sierra Pascual and Martin and I, we promote kind of, we do um, a certain kind of promotional or, or cheerleading activity for the communes here because we feel that that's where the process could be renovated. We feel it's, an, it's the radical Chavismo, the original Chavismo and uh, the possibility of renovating the process of returning it to socialism because we feel that the government has strayed from socialism it's not clear, and there's an ongoing debate here, whether it's a tactical or a strategic move, rightward turn of the government. But in any case, the in the kind of class struggle inside the Bolivarian process, on the one side, you have communes and other popular grassroots movements. On the other side, you have a government that seems to abandon the socialist project. So it's useful, both from the inside, like us, but also internationally for people in the international sphere to pay attention to that struggle. And if they're leftists, to support the communal movement to the degree that it tries to renovate the Bolivarian process. Samuel, do you want to take the next question? Um, yeah, so just one thing that struck me in, in reading this article um, was the concept of um, desprendimiento. Um, so I, I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that concept and like the role that um, in the movement of the communes. Sure, I, I found that interesting because I was in this context where uh, a very formed militant, uh, Ernesto Cruz from the Che Guevara chocolate, there's a Che Guevara socialist production or socialist property enterprise called uh, called Che Guevara there. And the uh, I was interviewing this person, uh, Ernesto Cruz, and he's a, a typical uh, traditional leftist in some ways formed in the traditions of Marxist Leninism and things like that. Nevertheless, he made this curious commentary about uh, the importance of desprendimento and actually referring to uh, kind of liberation theology to make the point. And uh, the idea, his idea was that uh, that's a central process, part of any kind of collective process. Desprendimento would be uh, kind of generosity or a willingness to uh, to uh, remove oneself, to self-negation, self-sacrifice, things like that. And that, of course, is part of the, uh, the legacy of liberation theology. But of course, you know, we're in the Che Guevara commune. Nobody exemplified that more fully than Che Guevara, since he was willing to leave behind a comfortable situation. He was a middle-class person in the first place. And then secondly, in Cuba, after the victory of the revolution, he went to Bolivia, or first to Congo, and then Bolivia and died there. So it's an example of this kind of generosity, the self willingness to make uh, self-sacrifice. Of course, that's really important in any kind of communal process. One of the biggest challenges, perhaps it's less challenging in Venezuela than other, other than countries of the global north, is developing a kind of solidarious common sense. I say it's less challenging in Venezuela because there's an existing kind of, it's like a, a palimpsest of pre-existing traditional society, pre-existing traditional society continues to to operate in a latent fashion here. And among the values of any traditional society is gonna be solidarity, uh, self-sacrifice, recipro reciprocity. So those things are gonna be reactivated in Venezuela and other 
countries in the periphery. But it's very important in any kind of communal process, perhaps more important even than the legal, like the like a commune should be socialist, should be a should be social property. The means of production in a commune should be should be social property. Nevertheless, social property, so it's not, if it's not going to be a simply words, it's got to be accompanied by a kind of um solidarious uh cosmovision, to put it that way, and a set of behaviors, kind of like um, spinal level behaviors. And I would maybe you call that like a, you need a hegemony of a kind of communal common sense. You need to develop a common sense that would replace capitalist common sense, which would be egoist, you know, selfishness, egoistic, self-promotion, self self-advancing, things like that. So that's obviously very important in a, in a commune. And, Maybe coming back, coming full circle to the chronic writing, a chronicle issue is you can discover things like this. Um, you, the elements that are theoretical necessities in communal construction or socialist construction, you can actually discover them empirically operating in a given context. Right, that, that's fascinating. And, you know, what, what you said about, you know, this like pre existing base of. Uh, you know, like the, the traditional societies that uh, there might be something to be like reawoke, reawoken there. Um, that reminds me of a conversation we had um, a while ago, um, speaking about, you know, indigenous and socialist movements um, in Peru. So is, is that sort of what you're referring to? Like, uh, like the structures of maybe like indigenous societies um, in countries um, like Venezuela or yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Peru is a good example because uh, I'm very interested in what you could call romantic Marxism. Romantic, I mean, that can be a confusing term. When I say romanticism, I don't refer to romantic love or anything like that. What I mean is romanticism in terms of a critique of modernity uh, emerging in the 18th century in Germany, Britain, France. Uh, essentially, the idea was that by going to the past, you could have a critique of modernity. As I said before, I was saying that Walter Benjamin or, or E.P. Thompson is, fits like a glove on the hand in Latin America. They're, the theories are so adequate that they uh, that sometimes it it, um, it can be you people can just not pay attention to it because it's so obvious. But the same thing with a certain kind of revolutionary romanticism. Uh, when you look at Latin American societies, they're palimpsests of different modes of production, and uh, you know people would say that. The, even the very stages Marxism, there's a Marxist theorist, Federico Brito Figueroa, who uh, did analysis, a long-term analysis of Venezuelan or the territory of Venezuela. And he pointed out the time he was writing, which was 60s, 1960s, 1970s in Venezuela, that there were like five modes of production still operating in the, in the, in the country. And then you can have actually kind of primitive, uh, but primitive communitarianism among among some indigenous groups like uh, the Yanomami in eastern in, in eastern Venezuela, so it's quite logical. Uh, and this is actually one of the big assets that uh, countries that maintain these uh, this combined and unequal forms of production uh, have a certain advantage, perhaps approaching socialism. They have a disadvantage in the sense that the means of production are perhaps need to be further developed. So there's a kind of lag there. But on the other hand, certain solidariousness and and uh, a certain worldview is already implicit in the society and just has to be reactivated. And I want to come back to Peru because the classic thinker in that case is uh, Jose Carlos Mariátegui. Mariátegui is a fascinating, unfortunately short-lived uh, uh, Peruvian Marxist. 
And uh, he looked at Incan society and saw and referred to Incan society as a kind of original communism because the land was not um, was not privately owned. And so there's kind of he's, he recognized that you could return to that or appeal to that those pre-existing social formations in the construction of socialism. In Venezuela, maybe that's not so uh, thoroughly investigated, uh, probably because of the kind of shock treatment that arrived here in petroleum culture. Nevertheless, there are some investigators, the most notable is uh, Mario Sanoja and Iraida Vargas, who wrote about, have written about indigenous social formations in the, along the Orinoco, and also, which is quite relevant, the uh, in Lada State, where some of the most, this is almost, this is evidence in favor of the hypothesis. In Lada State, which is like central West Venezuela, there, that's a place where there was a rich indigenous society called the Kakatia. And it's interesting that precisely there is where a lot of these cooperative communal projects still persist. So that speaks for the, for the, 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 the viability of the hypothesis. Yeah, we had a, a great conversation earlier uh, this year with uh, a professor on on Maria TV. Um, and that was like a Samuel and I both kind of discussed that some more process of kind of the indigenous roots for for the communization process. Um, I'm curious, maybe like extending from from what we've talked about a little bit about you were discussing kind of how this represents potentially a response to the um, the rightward turn in the in the government in Venezuela. I wonder if you can describe a little bit with that the kind of you made an allusion to it earlier of the relationship between the government in in Caracas with the uh, communes and and kind of how this works with decentralization uh, of the Bolivarian process. Yeah, well, um, let me talk about what I call the rightward turn just to give it a little bit of substance. One thing is. Um, so Chavez dies in early 2013 and Maduro becomes president. Uh, first, he's kind of acting president, then he wins an election. And uh, there's a, also a number of things that are happening nationally and internationally at that time. Shortly after Maduro becomes president, the price of petroleum go down. And there, but even before that, there's a kind of uh, attack, you could say, against Venezuela from the financial sector. Essentially, the financial sector decides to not extend credit any longer. Curiously, it coincides with Chavez's death, and you can wonder whether that was calculated that way or if it's just a coincidence. And to a certain extent, it was going to happen because when there's a, there was a kind of commodity super, super cycle in the, in the first decade of the 20th century, affecting gasoline, gas, petroleum, oil, but also affecting other commodities. And Venezuela indebted itself kind of on the basis of that petroleum super cycle, um, the commodity super cycle, especially the petro high petroleum prices. And then eventually that bubble is gonna come down, but the, the, but the international financial world shows a certain moment, which curiously coincided with the death of Chavez. So as you enter into the second decade of the 20th century, uh, the government starts to turn to the right. In what senses does it turn to the right? Perhaps the most obvious thing in the lived reality, our lived reality here in Venezuela is liberalization of the economy. You know, before, uh, under Chavez, there were a number of things that were not commodities at all. So education, many services were taken out of the housing, was taken out of the commodity, for many people was, was ceased to be a commodity. And, uh, and then there were price controls too. And those price controls were gradually fell away under Maduro's uh, presidency 
And there was a process of liberalization of money and even dollarization, overt, more or less overt dollarization. Of course, dollars circulate here, not officially, but part of the dollarization process is just indexing prices or using it as a, as a unit of account in daily transactions. So that's one element. But another, just, just as tragic, uh, would be the, the fact that the government turns less and less of the people. You know, one of the Chavez's key mantras was uh, popular, was participation and protagonism of the people. So the government under Maduro, and I believe actually in the last years of Chavez ceased to, ceased to appeal to the popular participation as fully as it had previously. So I think that um, the truth is that in the, in the last couple of years of Chavez's presidency, there was less appeal to popular participation, more of a top-down relationship. But for me, for example, strike, oh, well, and a gruesome, a gruesome element of this uh, rightward turn is the uh, form of policing that exists. Um, there's uh, kind of like militarized police that enter, enter into the barrios to presumably fight crime and fight drugs. But as we know, they generally are fighting against poor people too. So that's part of the, what I call the rightward turn. And a, cl a clear, clear case, if you want a clear, a crystal clear, example of this kind of rightward turn is when there were parliamentary elections in 2014 or 2015, I can't remember which exactly, but uh, the opposition won the majority, won the majority of the parliament, the National Assembly at that time. And uh, the response of the government to, the, to that electoral loss was, and this is interesting and almost nobody paid attention to it, was to blame the people for it. They talked about the ignorance of the people I think that's absolutely the wrong attitude. In, when you lose an election, you should reflect on why the bases have abandoned you and not assume that they're ignorant. You might assume that they have programmatic reasons for not voting for you. So even though Chavez, for example, Chavez lost an election in 2007, lost the constitutional reform election, but he had the maturity to ask himself the question of why he lost instead of blaming the people. So among those different things that some of them were the economic element, there's the security, I guess I should use that with scare quotes on it, the form of policing that's done. And then there's the political element, like writing popular participation, popular protagonism out of the process. All those things point to a rightward turn. Now, the question is, how do you analyze that rightward turn? Some people would say, oh, well, it's necessary. It's a necessary rightward turn because of the attacks of imperialism. And some, many people explicitly or, or implicitly appeal to Lenin's NEP, the new economic policy. They say, look, Lenin, uh, Lenin established market relations after the, the civil war got under control in the, in, the, in, the, in the fledgling Soviet Union. So many people appeal to that kind of thing. But whatever it is, it's had a very damaging effect on, uh, on political consciousness. It's had a very damaging effect on people's lives because I would think, I think there could have been a different approach, a way to approach the sanctions, the sanctions and the blockade are a very serious, real problem that everybody should reject. In other words, like the sanctions, people should, should, the sanctions are terrible and we should all criticize them and do what we can to end them. Nevertheless, there is space to question some of the government's policies faced with the sanctions. In other words, the question that I think any responsible person has to ask is, was there, is there a different way out of the crisis? In fact, that's why, uh, one of the things that we initially did when the, when during, then in the, in the second decade of the 20th century, when, especially when the crisis got very uh, grim around 2016, was to begin to interview people and ask them what they thought should be done. And so that was interesting to us because while we felt the government was not um, 
appealing to popular participation was not treating people as, as active agents, uh, we, we decided to actually try to listen to them and listen to their hypotheses, what they saw as a revolutionary socialist uh, way out of the crisis. So that's in some sense the origin of the book, Venezuela, uh, the President's Struggle, because we collected these interviews and we saw that there was a there was a kind of popular consensus about how to come out of the crisis in a way that didn't involve liberalization, didn't involve the rightward turn. And that popular way out of the crisis would be going back to the original Travis ideas, going back to socialism, going back to participative democracy, uh, going back to the commune too, as a way out of, as a way to solve the crisis. Um, yes, yeah, Samuel, do you wanna take the next one? Um, yes, sure. So I, I would just like you to elaborate a little bit on like, you know, the, the consensus, um, of getting out of the crisis, like what, what specifically were people saying, um, about, you know, how to avoid this crisis without going through the right word turn? Yeah, well, one of the, I mean, for example, um, some of these things connect with people's, you know, when there's a crisis here in, in a, in a Latin American country where there still is subsistence agriculture, for example, people will turn to subsistence agriculture naturally. But the, the most conscious elements of the process realized that it wasn't enough to turn to subsistence agriculture, but would be much wiser to attempt to do so with new social relations. In other words, uh, to not make an individual, but rather a collective solution. And so, for example, I was struck by how, you know, like occupation, one of the interesting things that's happened during the, um, during the decade of the during the second decade of the 20th century is that the focus of Chavismo has shifted more towards the rural areas. That's interesting because one of the striking features of Chavismo in the first in under Chavez was the protagonism of urban peoples, especially kind of what you call the surplus population. I mean the kind of the the reserve army, what Marx calls the reserve army of workers, which is abundant in Latin American cities, people who are semi-employed, semi-proletarian. And they were really the basis of Chavismo, and they were the ones who saved Chavez faced with the coup d'etat. They were the ones who came out for the marches, these powerful anti-imperialist, even pro-socialist marches were essentially people from the urban barrios, often semi-employed um, and with very precarious, precarious work conditions. But in the when the crisis hits, people the curiously, the the cities kind of go to sleep. I, that's an interesting thing to reflect on. But why were why were why were the cities uh, unable to maintain a kind of popular chavismo? But any the reasons for it, I would I could you could talk about the alienating effect of the cities. You could talk about the emigration to the importance of emigration. But whatever the reasons, uh, the the focus of class struggle, the focus of the authentic original chavista project, turned out to be the rural areas starting around 2015. And there were a number of expressions of this, but some of them are just spontaneous uh, occupations of land. People need to eat, so they occupy land and start to grow on it. Um, and for example, in 2018, there was, a, there was something called the Marcha Campesina, the, the Campesino March, the Farmer's March, which came to Caracas. And it was basically an expression of people in the rural areas who'd taken land and they found themselves confronting the local bourgeoisie and they found themselves with the local government sometimes on the on the side of the local bourgeoisie. So they naturally so they went to Caracas and appealed to the state, kind of like, why is this happening to us? Shouldn't you support the people in this? And so that was um that's those are there were kind of spontaneous expressions of an attempt to 
solve basic problems, food, water, in a collective fashion. And then there are more conscious elements. Um, but what, for example, you say, what, are the, what is the consensus? I would say participation, that you know, there's always room for participation. That was Chavez's mantra from the beginning. And even before he took power, he put great emphasis on popular sovereignty, on the activity of the masses, on self-emancipation, which by the way, is Marx, one of Marx's first Marxist ideas. You know, if you see Marxist thinking developing the 19, in the 1840s, he has this important shift away from the young Hegelians in these letters to Arnold Brook, in which he talks about the self-emancipation of the working class. So when Chavez talked about self-emancipation, popular participation and popular protagonism, he, whatever he was thinking, he was being a good Marxist, a spontaneously being a good Marxist. So people, I think part of this popular consensus was that participation, people are not just passive victims, they're also agents and they can, they can develop their own solutions. Um, and then the sense that one should go back, a kind of vague sense sometimes, that one should go back to Chavez, one should go back to Chavez's original ideas. And then of course, and this is kind of the linchpin of the whole left project in Venezuela right now, is to go back to the commune. The commune is something Chavez proposed initially around 2009, and it came on the heels of a number of different experiments. It's maybe worth thinking about some of those previous experiments. But the popular movement seized upon this uh, legal format, this uh, idea that Chavez had thrown out in 2009, 2010, and that the current government seems to be paying little attention to, and they seized upon this as a way of coming out of the crisis. And the communes at work uh, point to that, how that is a successful solution. You know, So you look at you know, my style commune, and the people who have achieved community organization live much better than, the, than their neighbors. So it shows that this, these communal solutions can work, can be an alternative solution to the crisis. Nothing better, it's one thing to do it on paper, but it's another thing to really, to be able to show it in a concrete way, which is one of the, one of the reasons it's worth looking at what works. You know, in other words, El Maisal Commune in Lada State works, Che Guevara Commune in, in the Andes works, Luisa Cáceres de Arismendi Commune in the big city of Barcelona here, Barcelona in the east of Venezuela, that also works. So um, a concrete example is, is better than a thousand words and it pro proves that there is a different way of coming out of the crisis. Um, Yeah, thanks. That's that's great. Um, I would really love to know, you know, what the commune looks like on the ground. So, would you mind, like, sort of taking us into the commune, and, you know, as best as you can, because I'm I'm sure it's a, a very complex uh, system. But, uh, you know, just take us into the commune. Like, what does it look like? Well, maybe uh, when you say, "What does it look like?" I immediately um, reminded of what Bertolt Brecht said about a, a, a factory. He said, you can't, you know, you can't tell anything about a, a factory from the picture of it. And that's kind of true of a commune. I mean, a commune is, uh, some of them are quite disappointing physically in physical terms. Now, curiously, I, there, there is something interesting. Curiously, the physical infrastructure can be, is very important or potentially very important. So I'll answer your question more directly. When you come, when you come to El Maisal commune, you see essentially a farm a farm, a farm with buildings, machinery. Now, maybe one difference with the tool, with a machinery set for tractors and things like that. You see an area for cattle and veterinary work, things like that. Maybe the biggest difference is 
a, more space allotted to public kind of public meeting spaces in you know, my South commune. So in that sense, it's different from a normal from a farm. Of course, it is an occupied farm. It was a private farm and it was occupied. But in the course of modifying it, there's more kind of meeting spaces. Now there is an interesting thing in the Maisal commune, which is a large thatch roof construction. We call them in Venezuela canes, but in Cuba they're called boillas. There's like a, it's like a thatch roof on a, on post, and that's like a meeting space, and that's become super important. So important that they had to expand it recently. They expanded it to so you can see like hundreds of people underneath it. Um, I'll come back to the, the importance of the cane in, in, uh, in El Maisal. When you go to Che Guevara commune, maybe what you notice first, it's basically a coffee, the, the center of, of activities there is basically a coffee processing unit. Uh, and the coffee, there's coffee roasting drums, a giant machinery, I call it cyclopedian machinery that takes up that space and it's really noisy. So you have a hard time even talking around it. Um, and then there's some experimental, there's greenhouses outside of the, the space, and uh, there's some experimental air drying uh, spaces for for treating coffee. Um, and then, just like Che Guevara, just like a Maisal commune, there's a big meeting spaces that developed above these uh, above the coffee processing unit. And then I recently visited a commune in um, in Cumanacoa, which is east of Venezuela. It's considerably less advanced. It's called Cinco Fortalezas, Five Strengths. And uh, they're really in bad shape economically, but they have this, uh, they also have their thatched roof uh, space, which they call uh, the mandala. And you can think that's really kind of like hokey or whatever, but the importance of these spaces that they call, you know, there's this idea that was developed in Brazil of mystica, revolution, the mystica revolutionaria. You know, the mystica is kind of like revolutionary spirituality. And again, you can kind of laugh at this, you can consider it kind of hokey or, or cursi, as we say in Spanish or Venezuelan Spanish. But uh, these things are immensely important because if you don't have a space, a meeting space, or some kind of symbolic way of registering your project, of registering social solidarity, what you look looks like you just have a scrappy farm. It's like a scrappy farm with like a mangy dog and a half-working tractor. But <laughs> if you have a space where you can all get together and think about the project together. And there's some kind of symbolic, symbolic um, register to point to the future, to point to a socialist future. Uh, that takes it away from, that points to the transitional nature of everything. In other words, I think one of the big challenges of a socialist transition is precisely that it's a transition. You can't do everything at once. So at first you have lots of problems. At first you have like an occupied farm with a lot of the problems of the earlier occupied farm, they don't go away just because you want them to go away. And so you need to have some way of symbolically showing that you're advancing towards something else. Actually, with the che, both the Che Guevara commune and the Maisal commune, there are a lot of murals. And in Maisal commune, they name all the buildings after revolutionary figures, Camila Torres, Archimelio Garbaldan, Che Guevara, there's names around the building. The same with the, the, the Comuna, um, Che Guevara, they have lots of great murals that kind of come, that do this, have this symbolic function of pointing towards where you're trying to go. Um, so anyway, I was kind of, I can say that when I visited the communes, initially I had this skeptical idea that what Brazilians called mystica in, in the, in the um, MSAT, the landless worker movement in Brazil, they talk about mystica. And it's like these symbolic ways of expressing social solidarity. But the truth is you can see how these things are important because 
they, they give a concrete, physical, symbolic message to people that, of the direction you're headed as a commune. So maybe apart from the, um, the you know, basic means of production, you have the means of production and the infrastructure, and often you have important meeting spaces. Then what separates these communes from normal workspaces, apart from the, the increased importance to meeting, are these symbolic things like murals or mandalas, or in the Maisala commune, they have a big bust of Chavez that looks like bronze, it's really plaster. And they have, they sometimes put flags around it and they strew corn underneath it, or they, they'll put like flowers above it. Yeah, thank you. Um, and thanks for that description as well. I'm, I'm kind of like building a question off of that. I'm, I'm kind of curious about how, like you were making these comparisons, these kind of trans-historical comparisons to the NEP of Lenin, um, and as well, like discussing actually existing socialism and kind of how you studied that in order to kind of make comparisons with the socialist transition in Venezuela. I'm, I'm curious in taking this in more of a less like Venezuela specific and more applying it to socialist development as a concept, but from studying the communes, I guess, what have you learned about applying ideas of, of socialist transition uh, and their, their real application in the conditions, the material and historical conditions of Venezuela? Um, and also what has it, what kind of insight has it gleaned about the different debates because when you were talking about for example the shift and the debate about the crisis and making these comparisons to the early soviet union it was making me think about like i feel like we use the soviet union as our frame of analysis and our frame of reference to think about socialist transition all over the world we don't have a lot of like examples from the global south to kind of use as a point of reference in other instances in the global south and i think venezuela is one that can be kind of a point of reference for future uh, analysis of socialist transition all over the world, and particularly in the global south. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the lessons overall that this has gleaned uh, insight for applications of, of Marxist theory and socialist transition. Uh, that's, that's a very good question, and one I hope I can give a good response to, uh, because I think those are the key, those are the things, uh, those are the key things that one should be talking about. Um, as far as the socialist transition is concerned, I want to mention one name, uh, Esteban Mesaros, uh, because that's central. I, I was saying at the beginning that a lot of my research involves like picking up what's often forgotten. And I sometimes point to two figures that people talk about Chavez, but they never talk about these two figures. And the first one is Bolivar. I mentioned a little bit of the importance of Bolivar. But the other one is Mesaros. So Esteban Mesaros wrote this giant book, and I'm going to show you the Venezuelan edition of the book. Uh, it's called uh, Masayado Capital Beyond Capital. It's a giant 1,500, 1,600-page work. And Chavez, you know, whatever you think, I mean, it's just a fact that just like Chavez didn't shut up about, couldn't shut up about Bolivar, um, he named everything Bolivar. I'm sure that he didn't go through, like, it's hard for Chavez to speak five minutes without mentioning the word Bolivar or the name Bolivar. But, but the same thing, so someone has to say why that's important, or else they just have to say that Chavez was was crazy or a populist or whatever, but I don't think so. I think that the, the Bolivar reference needs to be examined more seriously and it's actually a revolutionary proposal related to this idea of a kind of collective awakening that we were talking about earlier in relation to Benjamin's thought. But likewise, Chavez always talked about this book. He said, 
you could say it was essentially mad that he want, wanted everybody to read a 1,600, a dense 1,600 page work on theory. And nobody did it, absolutely nobody did it. In fact, there's a curious thing, which is that the connection with, uh, the connection with uh, Esteban Massaros comes through uh, Chavez's Minister of Finance, which is Jorge Giordiani. But even Giordiani wasn't too interested in Misados. So it's like a total void. Unfortunately, it's a pretty much total void. But Misados, if this book is called, I think the subtitle of this book is Socialist Transition. And Misados is the most, uh, Chavez showed great, a great capacity to locate the most advanced Marxist theory of his time. And so in the early 90s, he began to look at, began to have some kind of relationship to Misados and look at Misados' thinking about the socialist transition. Misados is an extremely difficult writer, uh, probably um, an imperfect writer too. So there's some real challenges to reading his work. On top of the translations, he wrote in English, but, and so, uh, but English wasn't his first language either. Um, but I think that the, this is the where we come to this set of things you brought up, Joseph, that I think are essentially, that are, that are truly crucial. One is thinking about the transition. The other thing is, what I would call the teachings, I would say the universal teachings of the Bolivarian process. Now, when I say universal, people will think, oh, he's saying he's doing something awful. He's trying to universalize one position. And people are rightly skeptical of the idea of universal if, if, if it's about taking like some white male heteronormative perspective and universalizing it. But no, when I say universal, I mean something very specific. I mean that right now capitalism is almost a universal condition. So that, there can, so that the problem of overcoming capitalism is shared among almost every society today. And in that sense, there can be universal, maybe with a small U contributions to socialist theory, to revolutionary theory. And I think Venezuela is, does offer those. And one of the important sources is the dialectical relationship with Esteban Mesaros and his thinking about the transition. So I'll try to say in a nutshell what Mesaros' key ideas are. Mesaros pointed out that Marx's work is called Marx's most uh, elaborate, elaborated work is uh, called Capital. Capital. <laughs> it's not called capitalism. And uh, Mesaros came to this conclusion. He grew up partly in, in Hungarian communism or Hungarian socialism would be more accurate. And he emigrated from Hungary in, in, in uh, 1956 after the, after the uprising in Hungary. But he, um, he felt that, uh, that actually existing socialism had uh, continued to be a system of capital. In other words, it was, they had overcome capitalism, but they hadn't overcome the capital system. And the capital system, so in other words, we have a, a broader category, which is capital systems. And one possibility is capitalism, when you have capitalists that extract surplus value from people. That would be capitalism, the capitalist version of the capital system. But Messeros felt there could be post-revolutionary capital systems that weren't capitalist, and the Soviet system was one of those. So they continued to extract surplus labor from people, not through capitalists, there were no capitalists, but the bureaucrats or the, you know, the functionaries carried out the role of capitalists in the extent that they, to the extent that they had a command over labor, an anti-undemocratic command over labor, and they continued to extract surplus value from workers, not surplus value, but surplus labor from workers. So that raised the question. So in Messeros's view, it was a capital system, even though it wasn't a capitalist system. And the, and it, because it embodied the logic of capital, the dynamic or the metabolism of capital, what he called the metabolism of capital. And the essence of this metabolism, this capital metabolism, was a hierarchical command over labor where anti-democratic molecular processes. So 
that means that the only way to get to socialism, a meaningful socialism, which would not be, which would overcome all the capital systems and not just the capitalist one, would be what he establishing a different, a different metabolism, a different logic. And some of those ideas, and so the different logic or the different metabolism would be a profoundly democratic, um, a profoundly democratic logic that would democracy in the workplace, democracy in other elements, in other aspects of the society, in all aspects of the society, substantive democracy, not formal democracy. So all those ideas, they jived with what Chavez was already thinking about participation. Chavez in 94, 93 was talking about how the people can save, only the people can save the people. And uh, so there was a connection already, but as time goes by, you can see how Chavez begins to reach more profoundly into the Mesaros playbook and starts to, eventually he turns to the commune. He turns to the commune and that's actually in this chapter 19 of the Beyond Capital book is called the communal system, the law of value in the communal system. And so Mesaros proposed that the only way to overcome the capital system was with the communal system. And there's good, you know, philological arguments in Marx for, in favor of this. Um, Marx was aware, especially the later Marx was aware that most of human history had been under some kind of communitarian or communal forms. So the real contrary of capitalism, of the capital system would be the communal system. And then it's also just kind of, apart from the philological thing, apart from the philological issue, the proof that Marx himself valued the communal form and saw as the alternative to capitalism, there's the other question, which is that if you want a substantive, substantive democracy, grassroots democracy applied to production, applied to other features of a society, what else, except for a kind of communal system, what else can accomplish that? So that's where Chavez turned to the commune. Now, I wanna emphasize that this is, you know, Chavez could be wrong, Meseros could be wrong, but these are hypotheses, programmatic hypotheses that deserve to be taken seriously. Um, and they're also relatively, they're universally applicable. It's not just because Venezuela has some indigenous traditions that might help communal construction. Much of the proposal, I would say 95% of it is relevant to any, any society suffering from capitalism and the transition in, of any society. So I think these are the fascinating questions. They deserve debate. I, you know, Marx, Marx always said that his thinking was scientific. Now you could ask, what, is, what, is science, what does scientific mean? Especially against, given that a lot of modern science wasn't as developed at the time when Marx was writing it. So what does he mean by science? Well, a lot of what he means by science, I would say most of what Marx says when he means when he says science, he means something repeatable that shouldn't be taken, I mean, they shouldn't be taken on authority that you have to, you can argue for. And so I think these contributions of Chavismo belong to the scientific element of socialism. It doesn't mean they're right, but it means they propose, they claim to be right. And they can be, they can be, they need to be argued, debated, refuted if people like. So I think that the, uh, that it's interesting right now, because when you look at when Chavez, Chavismo got started, Chavismo was alone, more or less alone. In other words, like, if you look at the history of Chavismo, it's always interesting to return to uh, the basics of history because we tend to forget things. Like Chavismo came out on the heels of, Chavismo was really not the first major protest against, uh, against neoliberalism in Latin America. The first was Zapatismo. And the, and the whole 1990s was kind of dominated by a, uh, what we call movementismo, no an emphasis on social movements, a lack of interest in, a relative lack of interest in political power. And then as Chavez comes forward and uh, does the, that time, surprising move of deciding to take power through elections. And so that's an important step in, 2000, in 1999, 2000, he takes power. 
And then in 2002, there's the coup d'etat attempt and there's a response to it, the popular response to it. And then Chavez declares socialism. He says, he picks up on what the, the, the social forum said, the World Social Forum said, another world is possible. You all are too young probably to remember that moment, but that was kind of like the slogan that dominated the turn, the turn of the century, another world is possible. And Chavez said, another world is possible if it's socialist. So he built on these, he added this new step to the thinking. But what's, what's interesting is that the, um, so not, then he put socialism on the table and he made a programmatic proposal for how to get to socialism. So I think what's interesting is when Chavez was alone, when Venezuela was relatively alone, there was Cuba on holding out nearby, but basically Chavismo was alone. Now there's a time in which there's a worldwide interest in socialism, at least nominally in the United States, there's an interest in socialism. You know, most many young people are in favor of socialism. So now in a sense, uh, there should be an, a big audience for learning from Chavismo. And I say that because I don't think Chavismo is some poor relation. In fact, you know, it's like to use the family metaphor, the poor relation arrives at your house. No, Chavismo in some sense is more advanced. In other words, like that's one of the things that we are trying to position the left of Chavismo, because those of us in Venezuela who consider ourselves the left of Chavismo, we're, we're trying to say that this is an advanced process and um, it can be learned from and implemented in other places. Yeah, Samuel, I don't know if you wanna ask the next one. That was a really great answer and thanks so much for answering that question. Yeah, um, so going back to this figure of Bolivar, um, you know, his, his great dream was um, like a unification of the continent, like, uh, you know, La Gran Colombia, like a, basically like a, a Pan-Americanism. So how how much did this influence like Chavez's um, vision for the continent? And also how can we sort of understand the current uh, relationship between Venezuela and Colombia, for example? Um, you know, through through that lens of uh, like the Bolivarian dream of Pan-Americanism. Very good, uh, a very good question. Uh, I would say that as far as the influence of Bolivar and Chavez's thinking about international relations, about continental integration, I would say that Bolivar is absolutely central. And this is of course part of the, you know, I was saying, if you look at the, what I what I struggle against is revisionism. <laughs> I mean, Revision, like revisionism in terms of Bolivar, in terms of Chavez too. Like people try to remember Chavez without socialism. They try to remember a Chavez who was merely a nationalist and, and did, didn't believe in socialism. They try to remember a Chavez who didn't read. Chavez was a terrific reader and writer. I, I don't, I'm not saying stylistically he was a good writer, but he, he developed thoughts, wrote them down. And the same thing with Bolivar. So, you know, like it's a famous saying in Venezuela, probably other Latin American countries that people tend to just treat Bolivar as a statue or you know an icon, and they don't want to pay any attention to what he really thought. And the most remarkable thing about Bolivar was that he had an emancipatory project. It wasn't called socialist, but you could argue that to realize what Bolivar to to bring into being today what Bolivar wanted, you'd have to be socialist. So you could say he was implicitly socialist. So you point to one of the key ideas of Bolivar, which is continental integration, or uh, you say Pan-Americanism. I I'm a little bit um, I'm a little bit leery of the expression Pan-Americanism because that, that is actually a term that was developed in the 1950s, I think. And it was essentially kind of, it was an attempt of the United States to impose a kind of US-centric unification of 
the, con the continent or the continents, depending on how you see it. Uh, so we tend to talk think about Bolivarianism as Bolivarianismo and, and, and Pan-Americanismo as two different ideas, because essentially the Bolivarian idea, and this is related to the, to the uh, overall configuration, social configuration of the Americas, the Bolivar's idea was that you would create a unified Latin America that would be able to kind of enter into rivalry or stand up to the Anglo-America, the North, North America. And those are, those are expressed both in Bolivar's thinking and also different efforts like the Panama Congress, which he attempted shortly before he died, an attempt to bring together Latin American countries. But it's also, there's also some linguistic problems. Simon Bolivar, just like Jose Marti, they both talk about America. But when they say America, they mean the Americas. They mean all of Amer the American continents. And when they say Nuestra America, they mean Latin America. Sometimes Bolivar talks about Hispano America or Ibero America, I think. But in any case, the most important thing is that they conceived a block of Latin American countries that would be an economic block too. This is a really revolutionary idea. And it's, it's actually maybe, you know, for Europeans, it's often difficult to understand this because one of the strange, you know, Europe is, Europe, European countries, often one state involves many nations. So you look at the Spanish state and there are many nations in the state. And uh, so there's the Basque nation or the Catalan nation or the Gallego nation. But you come to the Americas and it's the, uh, it's Latin, South America is the opposite. You have one nation, uh, maybe, you know, they all speak the same language, maybe not, you know, obviously there's indigenous groups, but, uh, and there's Portuguese speakers in the largest country of South America. But curiously, you have a large Hispano American population, which extends across various states. And so the, the, the surprising thing is that they're broken up across different states. And then the logical thing is to unify them into an economic block. The truth is that unification is not simply a patriotic or nationalist idea. It's also an economic one, because if Latin America were unified, it would not be so dependent. A lot of the fact that North America was able to dominate uh, Latin America and other and other and the rest of the world right now has to do with the fact that it was unified, and it was it was that made it the country the metro metropole in the region rather than the dependent countries. So. Bolivar's idea would have created a different sort of economy for the whole region, it would be to unify all of Latin America, one nation under one, one state forum. And that would have created a more powerful economy that uh, would have represented another destiny. Now, when I talk about Bolivar, I say all these things would have, would, but because one of the most important thing about Bolivar is he did not succeed. He did not succeed in his, in his emancipatory project. The independence of the different Republiquetas, the different little republics was achieved, but the larger emancipatory vision, which involves the end of slavery, which involved a different kind of economy, in which Bolivar said things like the greatest sum of happiness would be the effort, would be the goal of things, all those speak to a kind of emancipatory vision that he was not able to realize. So that's why Chavez, in this Benjamin-esque sort of turn, goes to Bolivar and says, we have a date with this person. <laughs> we have a, this person, gives us a mission. It's like, it's like saying, this is your mission. Your mission is to go forward with what I couldn't do in my lifetime. Um, so that's where Bolivarianism comes in. It continues to be a revolutionary idea. And you know, one of the things Joseph talked about, asked me about the transition to socialism and the relevance of, of Venezuela to the present moment. 
I think that the if you look at one of the axes I have to grind is the following one. It's that right now people talk about a return of the pink tie to Latin America. They talk about, you know, there's, it's true, leftist leaders are coming back. Uh, Boric in Chile, uh, Pedro Castillo in Peru, uh, quite possibly Petro will be the new president of Colombia. Quite possibly Lula will be a new president of, of or return to the presidency of Brazil. But I think it's important to realize, and you know, in this situation, to go back, if you want to talk about a new pink tide, a new leftist turn, let's not forget, and this is my ex, the axe I want to grind, let's not forget how radical the first wave was. Let's not pretend that Chavez was just a, a, a one just another government, a kind of left-leaning government. No, Chavez talked about socialism. Chavez talked about saving the planet. There was a high level of ambition. So let's not confuse a leader like Boric with Evo Morales or Chavez. There was a very high bar set. And in the interest of human emancipation to see, and, and Latin American emancipation, it's important to remember how high the bar was set uh, and how much could be learned from, from that process and how scientific it was. You know, going back to the transition of socialism, there's another thing that people tend to do. It's always contaminated by Eurocentrism because people think that the transition, they think that thinkers that are relevant come from the center. But quite often, and one of the, one of the victims of Eurocentrism is Mao Zedong because that was actually a, an amazing effort to build socialism. And I think that the thing that really needs to be studied is the Cultural Revolution. Um, and it was informed by a critique of Soviet socialism in which I would say they're 95% correct in their critique of Soviet socialism. So, you know, Mao Zedong and the Maoists, to speak more fairly, the Chinese Maoists, uh, are the first victim of Eurocentrism. But another victim of Eurocentrism is, is Venezuela or Bolivia, these countries that made real efforts to advance towards socialism. And to the extent that people don't take their theoretical contributions to that project seriously, it's because they're falling into a kind of Eurocentrism, I believe. Well, thank you for that great answer. I, I guess my last question, and, and after this, I, Samuel may have another, but yeah, I just have one last question, which would just be kind of generally what you see as, you touched on a little bit here about kind of the predictions about the returning pink tide and whatnot, but kind of the predictions going forward for the, the future of the Bolivarian process in general, but also for these communes and for Venezuela kind of, uh, and not to comment too much on on the day-to-day -day news, as, as you said, because I, I think that it's sort of, uh, it, it's a little more temporal than the, the overall arching process that's going on. But yeah, I guess if you could make any predictions about what's going on, and, and then in general, a prediction or, or comment about what this represents with respect to the changing nature of, of human development. And of, you were you were talking a little bit earlier about human nature as well. And, kind of how it's developing as well. I'm curious about that and what predictions you can see in the, in the long term on the horizon uh, from Venezuela in this process. Yeah, um, predictions, predictions are very dangerous. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, I also think that it's, people think, people fall into a mistake of thinking that uh, the role of, since many leftists work as social scientists of some kind or other, they think that naturally they should be able to make predictions too. Maybe the social scientists who, who attempt to make predictions most often and most often are wrong are economists. It's notoriously difficult to make any kind of prediction in the economy 
And nevertheless, they do it. I one time asked an important um, Marxist economist who did what he called prognostic, prognostica, why he did it. And he said, because people, people, because people pay me to do it. <laughs> he, had no, he had no idea. He really thought the predictive capacity was limited, but, but there's always a market for predictions. So that's why you can, you can sell it. But so I don't really think it's the role of leftists to make predictions. Um, no, of course, it's the role of leftists to try to understand the situation. I say that partly because I think that the, um, if you look at the current global scenario, the possibility for even human survival over the long term is uh, quite limited. Um, nevertheless, I think that you have to uh, kind of bracket that idea and just struggle, frankly. Um, you know, I don't, I don't particularly like the allegedly Gramscian idea of, of allegedly Gramsci said, it's actually, it was actually a kind of the slogan on his on a period on, on the on the periodical Avanti, which was uh, pessimism of the spirit, uh, optimism of the will. I don't particularly like that because I think that's like throwing a wet blanket over everything. But I do think that it's really when I say one should kind of bracket the optimistic or pessimistic uh, issues. I think that there is a role for kind of bracketing it. Um, I I think about the um, the. It's kind of like a wager. In other words, like with a wager, I like Pascal's wager. Kind of, it's like we're, we could be wrong, but if we're not, but we're screwed if we're not right. So we better go. We better go forward in this way because we're screwed otherwise. And if you think about that, you know, like right now the world is screwed if they if people continue to go forward with fossil fuels. So, you know, it's like the anything anything short of and but but beyond fossil fuels is the revolutionary the change of social relations that would make a non fossil fuel economy possible. So basically, the, only the more ambitious project, which is a socialist revolution, a communist revolution, that's the only viable way forward. So that's where we should be optimistic. Everything else is pe pessimistic. The only possible thing is a radical change in our way of living, a radical change in our social relations. So in that sense, I'm optimistic about the Venezuelan communes. I try to bracket the idea of whether they'll succeed it or not. <laughs> you know, like the truth is, the, the working communes are very few, and. Uh, so you can't say it's mostly like a hope, uh, a seed that could turn into something, but to, to point to it being hegemonic in the near future is, is unlikely. Coming, touching earth a little bit, coming down to earth a little bit more in Venezuela, I think that, you know, I mentioned that some people think that the government's rightward turn is tactical, other people think it's strategic. Um, I'm kind of agnostic about that because I don't think it matters. I think that regardless of whether the government, what the government is thinking, so the, let's say the tactical idea is this to present it in kind of cartoon terms. The tactical idea is that 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 um, Nicolas Maduro would really like to turn to the left, but the conditions won't allow it. He's surrounded by a lot of right wingers. The bourgeoisie has him under fire, and the imperialism has him under fire. So he needs kind of the popular movement to raise its head and make it possible to turn to the left again, make it possible to recover socialism. So that's one idea. I present it in kind of like cartoon terms. The other idea is that no, some people say no, it's a strategic change that Maduro actually represents a new emergent bourgeoisie that many of the ministers and other actors in the government actually have businesses and they follow business interests and their class interest is not socialist. And so it's a strategic turn. But what I, the reason why I say it's, it's it, this is kind of a, almost a scholastic issue right now because the, uh, regardless of what you think, regardless of which model you use, the only thing to do is organize the grassroots spaces and try to do so with a high index of autonomy. But even assuming the first case, assuming that 
Maduro wished to turn to the left and was unable to do so because of the correlation of forces. Even in that case, he would need to, you would need to organize the bases autonomously with a high degree of autonomy to pressure the other factors. So I think the task here is communal organization, is trying to, to recuperate the grassroots movement with participation with all the early ideas of Chavismo. And then we see where to go forward. Of course, this is like a dialectical thing with the continent, you know, and the continent and the world. When um, I, I meant to say, when we were talking about Bolivarianismo and the new emergence of the pink tide, it's very, again, this is a question of memory. Imagine how, what an internationalist Chavez was. Imagine what a Latin Americanist he was. Imagine how positive as a rule, though not always the relationships with Colombia were. He understood it to be the Patria Grande, the Gran Colombia as the objective. And right now under Maduro, you see how they tend to fan conflict between the two countries. And a certain conflict with the government is perfectly logical. The, the government of Colombia is fascist essentially, um, but the, the Colombian people is another matter. And Chavez was always aware that the Colombian people, it's one, it's one people spread between two countries or you know, spread between more than, more than two countries. But the Colombian people and the Venezuelan people are one people. And so it's extremely foolish to fan any kinds of flame, flames of divisionism of chauvinism there. So when I think about the new, the new pink tide, let it be internationalist, let it be Latin Americanist. Let's think about the Patria Grande again. That was the high bar that Chavez raised with extraordinary results. It's hard to imagine right now in this quiet Latin America that we live in or more quiet, you know, what it was like to have this, uh, the continent and movement as it was perhaps in 2008, 2009, something like that. Thank you so much. Um, it was a great answer. And Samuel, do you have any other questions? Um, well, I, I did have just like a, a small question about, um, well, you did mention the upcoming elections in Colombia. So I was just wondering your thoughts um, on how like a Petro victory uh, might open things up for Venezuela um, in the future, like, um, you know, a change in the relationship that might make um, new things possible for Venezuela. Yeah, I think um, I really speak if I to the sense let everything I say right now be taken uh, as um, a bit of speculation since I don't, I do follow Colombian politics. I followed it more in the past. I follow it less closely in recent times. Uh, on the one hand, Petro is not a radical leftist and that's precisely why he might be elected. Everyone knows that the political establishment has, a, has an iron control over things in Venezuela. They, I mean, in Colombia, they commit fraud when they need to there's an extremely low voter turnout. And so if Petro becomes president, that will be partly because he was permitted to become president because unfortunately Colombian history points to even surviving, surviving to get to the president's seat is a, sometimes a challenge. Uh, that doesn't mean that Petro's being elected would be meaningless. Uh, in fact, Chavez came to power through elections because he was permitted in some way or another. Even some banks in 1998 thought that Chavez was a better option for Venezuela and he had a part of the oligarchy on his side. So the fact that a part of the enemy thinks you're okay is uh, not necessarily a death sentence for a leftist candidate. My, so basically my idea about Colombia is the following. I think that Colombia is all, I mean, every country is unique, but Colombia is a unique or extreme case of 
a country dominated by US imperialism. And yet the number of military bases there, the size of the army, the size of the armed forces is giant. And a lot of that's simply bankrolled by the United States and Plan Colombia. And so any, any window in Colombia is me extremely meaningful for the continent, for the world, for the continent. So if Petro can just open up a small window for Colombia, that would be a giant breather for the Colombian people and for, for Venezuela, for the neighbors too. Now, that doesn't mean that Petro is, again, you know, if Petro gets in power, that's not, that doesn't mean the country is going towards socialism. That means that the leftists, the grassroots movements will just have another scenario, they'll have to go on struggling. Um, but I do believe it could be meaningful precisely because of the extremely rigid nature of Colombian politics. The fact that, I mean, look at Colombia, the, the same names dominate the country for the last 200 years. Uh, the oligarchy really has not been displaced. Uh, so uh, any change there, any even a small move to the left, I think would be of world historical importance. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree uh, with what you said there, but thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, don't want to take up too much more of your time, but this was a great conversation. I learned a lot. And uh, thank you. It's the, you know, I'll definitely read the uh, introduction that you mentioned to your book. I'm also looking forward to read the whole book. Um, so it's on my list. But yeah, thanks so much again. And uh, I think the work you're doing is really incredible. So definitely. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. I, I'm happy that people are interested. I think it's a uh important this kind of initiative that you have undertaken you know i, I thought you're going to ask me about uh any other recommended readings and uh, oh yeah this is our gonna typical make... uh, conclusion question that we ask yeah. but but yeah actually go ahead sure i i would like to suggest and contrary to what i i'm often people often associate me with venezuela analysis and i'm not part of the venezuela analysis team therefore my my plug for them is all the more meaningful i'm going to plug the venezuela analysis page I think it's actually a very good project. Obviously, it helps English speakers to have that window on it, but it's also a, a source that is, I think, beyond just being a source on, on Venezuelan English, it's also a very uh, sophisticated, fact-checked source that I would recommend heartily. And apart from my own books and uh, writing, I would, I would actually recommend George Chicarelli's. He has two books about Venezuela that I would recommend. The most important one is Building the Commune. And there's also one we created, uh, Chavez. Both those books are a pleasure because they're well-written. They also, I like them because they err on the side of optimism. <laughs> it's always good in a certain circumstance. And I think that he also, the books kind of remain close to the popular, um, he, he understands the importance of popular movement of grassroots, of the grassroots in the process. So that's why they're good reading on Venezuela. Great, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, those are those are new additions to my reading list because I always love learning more about the subject. So yeah, thank you again and uh, and continue the fantastic work. I'll, we'll definitely stay in touch um, and keep reaching out. Hopefully we can continue talking in the future. For sure, yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.